Michael Averco. He's an independent foreign policy analyst and a media critic who uh, takes a, a little bit of a different tact from what we hear in the rest of the media and somebody that has no problem calling out what he considers to be media hypocrisy on the issue of, of Russia. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Pleased to be here with you again, Frank. Thank you. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Now, the last time we spoke was before Russia had moved forward with this invasion of Ukraine. In our previous conversations, uh, you seem to have a much friendlier attitude towards Russia than many of the other foreign policy analysts that we hear about on radio and TV. Would you um, admit that Russia is the aggressor in this war here? Well, no more than saying the United States was the aggressor in Yugoslavia in 1999 and in Southeast Asia, or that Israel was the aggressor in Lebanon in 1982. As I mentioned to you in the past, Frank, this term aggressor is hypocritically applied. And so I prefer to be consistent. And we're not talking about a false equivalency in this and some other instances. But, I mean, there are a lot of people that are going to hear that and and point out the fact that, hey, look, you know, Russia attacked a country uh, or that never attacked it. How do you how do you say that that's not being the international aggressor? Sure, because for seven years, for eight years, actually, the Kiev regime in Ukraine has unleashed a war of aggression against the people in the rebel-held Donbass area, killing thousands, displacing thousands. And we know this is not propaganda because there have been U.N. OSCE observers who have confirmed that the majority of the uh, projectile firings have come from the regime side on the rebel side, with the rebel side having more casualties. Now, this has been going on for eight years. For the past seven years, the Kiev regime has stonewalled in implementing the UN-approved Minsk Protocol, which calls for a negotiated autonomy for Donbass. The United States government and other governments never pressured the Kiev regime with sanctions to follow through. Instead, there's been a casual attitude towards this aggression, and it is that aggression and some other factors that have led to this uh, unfortunate situation. For the record, I am never comfortable, and I indicate this in my February 27th article in uh, antiwar.com that was also picked up at Eurasia Review and the Strategic Culture Foundation. I am not comfortable whenever a power or any country that's maybe not a power goes into another country and the end result is going to be civilian casualties and uh, displacements. But I can walk and chew gum at the same time in being uncomfortable with that, as well as some of the responses thereafter, as well as beforehand, which certainly did not put water on this uh, fire. All right. Uh, The House of Representatives yesterday uh, passed overwhelmingly this resolution supporting Ukraine. Uh, Three Republicans ended up voting no, including Congressman uh, Thomas Massey of, uh, I believe, Massachusetts. What was your reaction to the House voting in favor of this resolution supporting Ukraine? Uh, I consider it to be a lot of hot air. Unfortunately, the politicians, when it comes to something that's related to Russia, there's very often... 
this knee-jerk uh, reaction that is frankly based on a lot of arrogance, ignorance, and uh, hypocrisy. And uh, a lot of people are saying, uh, Cong- Congressman Massey, for instance, I don't know if it's a lot of people, are saying that there are a lot of things in this seven-page resolution that they couldn't get behind, including an open-ended call for additional additional and immediate defensive security assistance. Uh, you get the sense that uh, if every member of Congress would have read that, that maybe you would have had more than three Republicans voting no. Yeah, well, you see this idea that arming the Kiev regime on top of these uh, bellicose over-the-top sanctions, uh, that it's somehow going to be a difference maker, I think is terribly misleading. If anything, it's going to lead to a, a longer period of war and, for that matter, carnage. You know, the giving weaponry to Ukraine is like somebody giving you a baseball bat to face a potential opponent who has a loaded machine gun. Well, I brought this up earlier with uh, Dr. Harlan Ullman, and he totally dismissed the criticism of those that don't want to give uh, lethal aid to the Ukrainians. I- explain why. Well, now, just Tuesday, we gave a whole bunch more Stinger missiles and other military weaponry to the Ukrainians in their fight against Russia. The people that are responsible for that are saying, look, this is going to help keep these folks alive. Just explain again why it's a mistake for the U.S. or other NATO countries to give weaponry to the Ukrainians in this war right now. Well, you know, like I said, for example, you can give them all the weaponry, but there's no way they can win. So you're giving them this weaponry, and on top of the rhetoric, you're just encouraging them to fight on, and as they fight on, it prolongs the situation with more people dying. And let's keep in mind, too, that Dr. Harlan Ullman, I'm familiar with his views. It's no surprise that he has an affiliation with the Atlantic Council, which is, you know, a pro-NATO think tank that gets a lot of um, support from uh, the military-industrial complex, and they have a vested interest in seeing these sort of militarized uh, situations that involve uh, the sale of uh, weaponry. In terms of the calls for a no-fly zone, uh, one of the things that I've been heartened by is President Biden's refusal to go forward with a no-fly zone. One of the things that makes me very nervous is that we're seeing more and more calls from members of Congress from pundits internationally for a no-fly zone. I want you to explain to people that disagree with you, people that think the Ukrainians are the victims here and are the victims of Russian and Putin aggression, why it would be unwise for President Biden and the United States to do as Vladimir Zelensky is asking and establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Well, very interesting, because shortly before I came on, uh, Ben Wallace, who's a pathetic joke of a defense minister for Britain, nevertheless, he had to make prudent sense to a questionnaire at his press conference in Tallinn with his Estonian counterpart. It was pointed out that in 1999, uh, NATO aggression, and I use that word uh, sarcastically, Uh, NATO aggression against Yugoslavia involved a no-fly zone over territory that's not a part of uh, NATO. And Ben Wallace calmly pointed out that, you know, look, that's Yugoslavia, and I'm paraphrasing him in so many words, 
we can hit Yugoslavia, okay, the Serbs are miniature Russians without nukes or a strong military, but Russia has a very good, some would say the world's best air defense uh, system, and uh, it would be uh, extremely counterproductive, put mildly, to actually enforce a no-fly zone in uh, that uh, part of the world, which is uh, Russia's uh, backyard. And in terms of your other point about Ukraine, Tucker Carlson has uh, observed what keen objective Russia observers already know about Kiev regime-controlled Ukraine. It is not a democracy. It has suppressed those that are not anti-Russian, media and otherwise, and they have committed aggression in the Donbass. So this idea that it's a simplistic good versus evil conflict is completely bogus. Zelensky himself is a weak leader. You know, he won the presidency against somebody who had a nationalist anti-Russian platform in Petro Poroshenko. He won that election overwhelmingly in which he called for better relations with Russia and ending the war in Donbass. But then when he took office, he took an exactly opposite uh, position. And the reason why is because the nationalists, some of them neo-Nazis, no ands, ifs, or buts, they uh, have disproportionate influence, and they basically coaxed him in another direction. And we saw this, too, shortly after this Russian uh, so-called special military operation. Zelensky was quoted as saying, look, I'm willing to talk about a neutrality status. But then he quickly turned around. And again, to me and some of my people, friends in Russia, uh, we're of the impression that he can't really break away from this extremist dominating element around him. Would it be a mistake for people listening or to you right now to call you pro-Russia? I'm pro-Russian and pro-American. I'm pro-Russian because I think it's in the best interests of the United States. And I believe that, unfortunately, because of uh, influential anti-Russian lobby in this country, uh, the advocacy of myself and others, we consistently get uh, the kibosh put on us. I mean, I greatly appreciate your having a more broad-based perspective where you can have someone on like Wesley Clark and Harlan Ullman, but then have an extended give and take with yours truly. And by the way, that desire to showcase multiple points of view or provide greater context than my own commentary, that's label, that's been, uh, that's had a whole bunch of people refer to me as a Russian stooge, as a spokesman for the Kremlin. One listener has taken to calling me Moscow Morano. So you see the, the reward that media personalities get for trying to have a more nuanced discussion about this subject is essentially an attempt at at, at cancellation. And uh, I would venture to say I've noticed that I get I get a lot fewer retweets these days. I do think that big tech, I have no evidence of this, but I do think big tech is uh, trying to kind of suppress some of the social media messaging promoting this content that we're doing on the radio, which is one of the reasons that I'm sincerely, and I don't want to sound patronizing, but I'm sincerely grateful to John Katsimatidis for giving me a platform for four hours a day without any restrictions that I have to take one narrative point of view or, or another. So I appreciate you recognizing that. Yes, and let me also say this, too. It relates to the Ukrainian community as well. You know, in the think tanks in the United States and the media, 
You get the impression that every Ukrainian is uh, very uh, disliking of Russia. But I can tell you right now, I run into people from Ukraine, and they're not, you know, ethnic Russians per se. Some of them are ethnic Ukrainians. Some of them are mixed. Some of them are of Jewish background. You know, Ukraine, like the other former Soviet republics, a lot of them anyway, is a kind of a melting pot. And you know what? They tell me, you know, Mike, I agree with you 100%, but I don't get involved because I have my own professional career. And I see the sort of flack that people like yourself, i.e. me, go through. So they would rather not deal with it. And they also tell me that at Ukrainian expat gatherings on the weekend, the pro-Banderite group, um, you know, they have a way of being provocative, of being loud. It almost seems like they're looking to cause trouble where, you know, they try to start these arguments. And a lot of people who don't agree with them just basically uh, shut up because they know that it could get loud and at times uh, violent. There have been a lot of folks, including Dr. Ullman, that uh, believe that Russia is responsible for war crimes. Just this week, the International Criminal Court at The Hague says they're going to be investigating whether or not war crimes have been committed. President Biden hasn't gone that that far. He is not willing to commit to saying Russia's committed war crimes. You seem in your commentary to be saying that Russia has actually demonstrated a fair amount of restraint. Is that right? Uh, not only have I have said that, but uh, Douglas McGregor on your show, and I also believe elsewhere, has uh, said that now. You know, it's very difficult to fight a clean war in civilian areas, and that's why I am not comfortable about this situation, because no matter how hard you try, there are going to be civilian casualties. And this is what I consider to be war porn, Frank, and audience. And I choose that term uh, pointedly, war porn. I didn't coin it. But we're clearly seeing war porn here. We're seeing true human interest stories, okay, with the likes of Clarissa Ward on CNN and Richard Engel on MSNBC. But we didn't see that when it came to uh, the Donbass rebel inhabitants. And I think the reason why is, uh, frankly, a kind of bigotry, because this is the other side of Ukraine. It's closer to Russia, farther away from Central and Western Europe. And the people who are suffering in that instance, they happen to have a pro-Russian outlook. And as far as this war crime stuff, uh, we're talking about another attempt at a kangaroo court, similar to what happened with uh, former Yugoslavia. I mean, look, Trump was at his best when he had this give and take with Bill O'Reilly, where O'Reilly flippantly said, Putin is a killer. Trump was at his best. Right. When he said, he there, said we, we, there are a lot of killers. You think we're so innocent? Exactly. And you know what? Trump is right, because, again, and I am a patriot, okay? Um, in 1979 or 80, when um, Carter reintroduced the draft, I was young at the time, but, you know, and I didn't agree with it. But you know what? I signed up. I didn't, you know, do anything, you know, counter to that. Uh, I come from a family of war veterans, so nobody is going to second-guess my patriotism and love for this country. I'm in this country because... I love it. And uh, my opposition to the neocons and neolibs should not be confused with being anti-American. They have no business hijacking the idea of what it is to be an American. Final question, Michael, and then I'll, I'll look forward to our next conversation unless I'm 
canceled between now and then is uh, there the prevailing narrative uh, in the media and including a lot of commentators that um, have a more nuanced view of the situation has been that the Ukrainians have been doing much better than expected in fighting off the Russians. From your perspective, is that true? Are the Ukrainians doing better than expected? Uh, they might be, but then again, keep in mind, too, there's a lot of propaganda, like the guy who supposedly shot down five, six Russian planes, and DW and some others look into it, and it basically was video from a computer game to prove that. I mean, I saw something really bad. The BBC said the host in a propagandistic way. If the Russians thought they would greet, be greeted as liberators, watch this scene. They show a civilian SUV. It didn't have military colors or military marks. It was spray-painted in white with Z. Z is what you typically see on what Russian transport vehicles in Ukraine. It, comp- it really it looked like a hoax, and you see a bunch of people running towards it in a hostile way, some of them with Ukrainian flags. There was nothing in front or back of that vehicle. I'm supposed to believe that was real footage. And then afterwards, that BBC host has the audacity to host Risto Grozev of Bellingcap, which is a British government-funded propaganda outfit that only goes after purported disinformation that goes against uh, UK foreign policy interests. You know, there are people who sincerely believe in uh, the Kiev regime cause, and they are fighting, and not all of them are Nazis, I acknowledge it. But, you know, we don't know a lot of what's going on. And, uh, you know, I, like many people, I want to take a calm approach. I don't want to jump to conclusions. One of the reasons why Russia has not advanced as quickly as some might think is because, as Colonel McGregor and some others have pointed out, they do have a deliberate, calculated probing sort of role. So this is something ongoing, and so I reserve judgment somewhat. Well, all right, Michael, question. always interesting to chat with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks very much.